Good morning. Uh, before I let the children go, I, I want to read just a short uh, prayer from Psalm uh, 144, verse 2. It says this, <clears throat> May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. May our daughters be like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Lord, hear our prayer. Help our children be discipled and taught of you, Christ. May they grow to love you. Um, it's in Christ's name we pray. Uh, children, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so you may go. My name is Evan. I'm on staff here, and I serve in the men's ministry and life groups. Uh, I'm also working towards earning a Master's of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary. And this is all in the eventual hopes of becoming ordained in the PCA, uh, and that's our denomination, and uh, Lord willing, if the Lord wills, planting a church in Topeka, um, that forsaken town just west of you guys. I don't know if you've heard of it. So, um, uh, uh, Sammy and I and our uh, twin girls, Myla and Layton, have been here at the church um, ever since October of the last year, and uh, I don't preach often, and so as I'm up here, I, I just want to say thank you guys for welcoming us. Uh, we are so, um, we, we love being here, really. Sam and I just love it. And uh, our girls are starting to just love it as well. I, I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to beat my uh, parents out the door to pick them up sometimes, because I know they, they want to go pick them up from Sunday school. But I love going and seeing them uh, learn and be taught. And so one of my favorite memories was a few weeks ago, I, uh, after communion, I jet out to, to go pick up our, our twin girls, Myla and Layton, from the twos room. They're, they're two years old. And uh, what I saw was just beautiful. It was uh, a, 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 this, you know, mighty man of valor, this ex-chaplain uh, ranger, now grace pastor, Mark Winton, on, lying on the floor of the twos room, uh, reading uh, Bible stories to my sweet precious girl, Layton. And uh, I thought, man, what, what great, um, what is this, that's awesome. Like what our church does and caring for one another's children. And so uh, thank you guys for, for um, caring for um, our girls and um, each other's. And so I just wanna say, say this. Um, so that was a precious reminder of what we believe is true of our children. Uh, that they are recipients of God's covenant of grace to be raised as little Christians in hopes we raise them expectantly that one day their faith becomes realized to themselves and becomes fruitious and visible to others. That's our hope. We raise them in hopes. We do not see their discipleship even from the earliest, most tender age as something like the hopeless carving of rotten wood or the molding of hardened clay, but rather we see it as the tender care of a seedling that we hope and long to grow into oaks of righteousness. Um, we do not just see them as vipers and diapers. <laughs> Though we know they have a sinful nature, we're not ignorant of that, trust me. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians seven fourteen, deems covenant children holy and set apart. That is covenant language. So thank you for uh, fulfilling the vows that, that you make at the baptism of children. So, and as I read earlier, 
Psalm 144.2 says, May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Um, so today, I just want to tell uh, us where, where we've been, uh, where we are, and, and kind of where we're going when it comes to um, our preaching schedule. Uh, it's, a, it's a, first of all, it's a tremendous honor to be up here to get to preach God's word. Um, so uh, I think it was back in November, we finished preaching through the book of John. Um, and then in December, we visited the Royal Psalms. Uh, you know, we became all liturgical and stuff and uh, pondered the season of Advent and the coming of Christ. And then I believe next week or, or soon, uh, Pastor Boomer uh, will open up the book of Jonah. We alternate Old Testament and New Testament uh, in an effort to uh, not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God's word to you guys. And so uh, in the in-between, uh, sometimes if there's not a passage burning on my heart, if we're not in a series, I like to kind of uh, uh, seek counsel with our higher churchly uh, brothers and sisters in the denominations that follow the uh, lectionary, the preaching calendar, the, you know, they're the, uh, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, and so I, I, I checked, and our Anglican brothers and sisters would be, um, they would be reading the Old Testament passage, still in the Christmas season, of Isaiah 61, verses 10 through 62, 5. So, so that's what we'll be uh, preaching today as we uh, move on. So there, there's uh, no, uh, it's not a coincidence that, uh, that this passage was picked for December 31st. I wouldn't consider this a New Year's sermon, but it does have a theme of that. And so uh, chapter 61 is entitled, The Year of the Lord's Favor. It's famously what Jesus opened the scroll up to in Luke chapter 4 and began reading, saying that he had fulfilled it uh, in his coming. And this uh, sermon will have uh, a theme of newness to come. So um, let me pray for us before we open up God's word. Father, we come to you in Christ's name. Uh, Would you open our minds as Christ, you open the disciples' minds on the road to Emmaus, that you may fill our minds uh, with your truth, that they might be nourished by your truth. Um, Holy Spirit, make the word of God dwell not only in our heads, but in our hearts. Uh, And as Paul prayed, grant us to be strengthened with power uh, through the Spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith that we might be rooted, that we might be grounded in love, that we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me read and then give us some background, and then we'll move forward. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. 
The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And as we say, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, <clears throat> any book of scripture is hard to just jump in some part of it and jump back out. Um, they weren't written like that. Um, and this is even more true of Isaiah. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And so jumping into this is kind of like blindly parachuting into the Amazon rainforest and trying to figure out where we are. It's dense. Uh, but let me just, I think I can give us a sense of our bearings uh, as we move into this text. So um, the background of, of the nation of Israel during the time of Isaiah is like it kind of always has been, and it's uh, the best word to describe it is shaky, shaky, uh, teeter-tottering, um, always at least at the threat of imperial nations surrounding them, whether it was Assyrians in the first 40 chapters of the book of, of Isaiah, um, threatening, knocking at the door, um, and then eventually um, um, invading. And then in the latter half of the book, in chapters 40 through 66, it's the Babylonian Empire that's doing the same. And then we know after that it was the Romans. So the best way to describe the background of Israel in this time is shaky, afraid, nervous. Um, of course, we know Hebrews, in chapter 12, comforts us. And so I want to bring this into the New Testament light because the message of Isaiah is not just for the people of old, but it's for us as the New Testament teaches us, as Paul tells us, that we might be encouraged by the scriptures of old. Um, so uh, the author of Hebrews <clears throat> comforts us by saying that we, the church, we have come to a kingdom that can't be shaken, okay? Yet we know that that cannot mean this current nation where we leave, live, or, or any nation on earth, right? Uh, the, the Apostle Peter refers to the church as exiles, just like the nation of Israel. They were exiles. They were sojourners. Uh, they longed for a distant land, a far-off country. They were citizens of a coming kingdom. Um, same with us. Um, Every Christian everywhere is in exile who longs for a better land. And this nation, like any earthly nation, is shakable. In 2024, it will shake. Um, I read something the other day that said the housing market operates in 16-year cycles. We know what happened 16 years ago. Uh, it is an election year. There's rumors of wars and there's sinful candidates full of flaws on both sides. Um, I say this to make sure we understand that Isaiah's message applies just as much to us as it did to the Israelites who so desperately wanted 
a righteous king to save them from outer oppression. And so if I could summarize the message of Isaiah, I would say this. Essentially, Isaiah comforts the people by telling them where to put their trust, not in earthly kings, because the coming king, the Holy One of Israel, is far better than they would ever know. And then I think this is very important. I think this is the message of Isaiah and the message for us. It is better to wait for this coming king by faith than to enjoy the present rule and reign of any kind of human king, no matter what type of quality that king is. We say that again. This is true for us, family of God. This is true of us today. It is better for us to wait for the coming king, Jesus Christ, by faith, than to enjoy the present rule and reign of any kind of human king, no matter what quality. Of course, this does not mean we're apolitical. We don't pray for good kings. We should do that. We should do that. Um, And so I just want to say this. It's an election year. What if, what if in a... um, in a year that is inevitably probably going to wind up with uncivil conversation between candidates and parties. What if the church, um, again, not stepping out from politics, I'm not advocating for being apolitical. I don't think that that's helpful, actually. But what if you and I, what if we pondered deeply the kingship of Christ so pondered and so drew near to Christ the King and so built in us longings for his coming rule and reign and his present spiritual reign in the church. What if, what if that's what we did? And, and yes, we engaged in political conversations and we did our work, but we were so in love and enthralled with him whose foundations of his throne are fully just and fully righteous, okay? So, so vote, use wisdom. I will not bind consciences, right? But what if you just drew near to Christ the King this year? What if you just pondered his worth and his loveliness as we look at flawed candidates? Look to the one who has no flaws. Be able to speak of him. That is what the world is desperately longing for. Um, so there, scholars usually divide the book of Isaiah into three sections. And, and I'll just say the last section um, is, is foretelling. In prophecy, there is both foretelling, which is telling forth the word of God to a situation, to a circumstance, not necessarily predicting but there is a sense, uh, a sense in the Old Testament, at least, that prophets foresaw, okay, that they wrote down Holy Scripture of the things that were to come. And today, we have, you know, lowercase prophets, people who tell forth the word of God, but we don't have, you know, uppercase prophets, if you will, who are predicting the future, okay? Um, but we do open the word of God, and pastors say, thus saith the Lord, Here is what the Lord says from his word, but we are not 
writing new scripture. The canon is closed. But in the last section of Isaiah, the last 10 books were our passages. Isaiah has now kind of shifted from telling forth a message of judgment to Israel with sometimes sparing notes of hope to now foretelling what it's like, what it's going to be like at the end of the age as, as the true king comes. And so uh, three points for us this morning. Point one, God's resolutions <clears throat> will come to fruition. And your greatest need this year and in any year is to learn to trust in God's promises. Point two, the church is holy, so believe his assessment of you. This holiness is like a garden of fruit for Christ to enjoy and for the world to see. Lastly, your resolutions, if done in the strength and might of God's Holy Spirit, can avoid vanity. Uh, God's resolution will come to fruition. Uh, What is a resolution? I think sometimes we talk about a resolution like it's a wish, and, and it's not. It's a sure pledge of duty. We are not naturally inclined, because of our sin, to be resolute. We hope to grow more resolute in Christ, but naturally, we waver. We make rash vows, we void promises, we let ourselves down, others down, we oscillate, or sit on our hands altogether. And and here's the truth, and, and what we see here in Isaiah. God has never not been resolute. He always will be resolute. And you don't need to know that just today. You need to know that every day of all all year. He will do what he says he will do. What is God's resolution? We see this resolution in Isaiah. His resolution is the church's sanctification for his glory. God's promises are sure pledges of what he will do. And we are called to have faith. Um... Jonathan Edwards is famous for writing many, many things. He was a 17th century Puritan who has a uh, volume of 26 works that uh, was published by Yale that has 16,000 pages. Not words, pages, okay? But there's one thing that he also wrote, and it was uh, resolutions from 1722. He was young, and he wrote some resolutions. And they are extremely intense, if you ever get a chance to read them. Extremely intense. I mean, what he resolves to do is just impossible. And he had strong desires, and I commend him for that. Uh, His desires for holiness were strong, as I hope all of ours are. But his will, and and so his will is fallen like ours. So as I read through these intense, like 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards, I don't ask if, I, I just ask, I wonder how quickly he failed these, right? Um, one of his was to, to resolve to not get angry at inanimate objects, okay? Midnight, he wakes up. I mean, there's no lights back then, right? All right, stubs his toe on something? Nah, come on, come on now. Uh, his nature's fallen like ours. Yes, in Christ, we're, we are no longer abound and enslaved to sin. Our wills have been freed, and yet... Paul's teaching is clear. Romans 7, we wrestle 
with our fallen flesh. We have indwelling sin. One of the major overarching questions, especially early on in the book of Isaiah is, is this. Given the absolute broken and sinful condition that the people of God were in, how would they become what God desires them to be? The picture that the prophet Isaiah paints of God's people is brutally honest, especially in chapters one through five, I don't have time, but these are the woe passages upon Israel, pronouncements of judgment. Um, God refers to Israel, his people, as the unfaithful city, children of rebellion, dumber than an ox, for at least an ox knows who its owner is. But Israel, no, they don't know who their God is, they have forgotten. Israel is judged for all kinds of sin, pride, arrogance, leadership taking advantage of the poor, drunkards, uh, greediness. They're only slightly better off than Sodom and Gomorrah, is what Isaiah writes. They are utterly estranged from the Lord. And yet, God, throughout these judgments, promises restoration. He promises to sanctify and purify a people for himself. We see a more full picture of this promise in this section that we just read in the form of two recurring symbols. I think these are important, and I think they're placed in an, in an order of importance as well that, that has uh, meaning to them. The motif, it's a motif, and, and uh, we have the marriage motif in verse 10 of chapter 61, and we have the garden motif in verse 11 of chapter 61. Um, and I believe the order of defining our union with Christ as a marriage um, coming first matters. So in the marriage motif, the emphasis is union, intimacy, where all the spiritual blessings of Christ are enjoyed by his bride, us, the church. Union with Christ means the church is clothed with his righteousness. This righteousness, which is native to Christ, is yet alien to us. He must impute it his own to us, and he gladly does this. Um, as it says, for he has clothed us, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Um, one of the earliest commentaries we have uh, of Isaiah is Eusebius, I'm not saying that right, but of Caesarea. And he says this, he says that it is uh, the clothing of the garments of salvation, would be the imputed innocence of Christ to us, the forgiveness, but that the overlayment, the robe of righteousness, would be the promise of the resurrection body that we will someday share with Christ. Um, <clears throat> we get but a foretaste of that in the here and now. Um, secondly, the garden motif. The emphasis in the garden motif in chapter uh, 61, verse 11, is that of production or fruit. While union with Christ by faith, gives, given to us here by Isaiah in the terms of an intimate marriage relationship, provides us with a picture of what is the foundational cause of our holy and righteous status. It is the garden imagery that follows in verse 11, which gives us the picture of the effect of this union. The effect of this union with Christ is the bearing of fruit. Christ rightfully deserves to find fruit in his vineyard, the church, and find it he will. He will. He's resolute. Look what it, what it says, right? 
For as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God causes righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. He causes it. This is what John Owen says in a book, Communion with God, one of my favorite books. He says, the souls of saints are the garden of Jesus Christ, the good ground, a garden for delight. He rejoices in them. His delights are with the sons of men, and he rejoices over them, and a garden for fruit, pleasant fruit, so he describes it. Um, I think that um, in my own life, I think that sometimes we tend to err to one of these motifs, that we either see union with Christ only in the intimate terms of union with him, marriage with him. We, we always want the spiritual highs, the warm, fuzzy feelings, the extended times of lingering in morning devotionals, all good. But I think sometimes, and this is in my own life, we might fall to the temptation to only think of our union with Christ in terms of the garden motif, which the emphasis there is production, right? Produce, fruitfulness, actions, all that we want to see visible, tangible, expressed in our life, good things, right? I think some, sometimes, I'm just being honest, in my life, I think I get sometimes too drawn to, to one. Oh, just pr- production, Evan, production, produce, produce. And I ha- we have to know produce, true production, true fruitfulness only comes through abiding in Christ, right? Abiding comes first. Intimacy with Christ is the root, the foundation. John 15, right? John, uh, Jesus says, uh, abide in me, apart from me, you're worthless. Okay? Uh, cut off branches. Um, this is a picture of sanctification. <clears throat> Christ causes it. But there's double agent work right here, okay? We also are an agent in uh, sanctification, though it is all the work of Christ. He is the ultimate cause of our salvation and our sanctification. But the image is clear here uh, that there is cooperation. And, and let me just read. Um, so scripture speaks of the mystery of divine work and human effort. Okay. Uh, Paul in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, this is, this is how he says it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See that? It's not either or, it's both. First Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. You see that? Uh, If a fire is the image, then we must know God starts the fire. Scripture calls us to fan it into flame. Uh, If the garden is the image, then we can say along with Paul, one plants, one waters, and yet it is God who causes the growth. And what does this mean for us? From a redemptive historical vantage point, we need to realize where we are and what we currently possess. As we look towards the fullness 
of what we will have at the return of Christ. So let me summarize just our privileged position here um, as sanctified vessels of God's grace. There's, there's three P's that you can easily jot down for notes. Um, <clears throat> God has saved us from the penalty of sin. God has saved us from the penalty of sin. God is currently saving us from the power of sin. One day, when Christ returns, he will save us from the presence of sin. Another way to say this more philosophically, but I really love, I love this way. Um, God originally created us in a status of able to sin, able not to sin. After the fall, right, apart from God's agency in us, apart from his work, his causing of regeneration in us, apart from that and the redemptive power of Christ, we are then deemed unable to not sin. We can't not sin. We're enslaved to sin is what the scripture says, apart from the work of Christ, enslaved. Sin is our master. It rules over us, it has dominion over us. Our status today as New Testament believers is sort of back to original, able to sin, able not to sin in the power of the Holy Spirit. One day, one day in the kingdom of God, we will be unable to sin. We have never known what that's like. That will come. You press towards that. But no, Christ is saving us from the power of sin, but it indwells within us. It is a battle. One day, we will be fully sanctified in the kingdom of God. So enjoy what for Israel was only a whisper, but for us, is a shout. That is that God is at work redeeming us. Um, point two, uh, the church is holy. That exists for Christ and for the world. Uh, and um, we see God's call for his people to be on mission even from the Garden of Eden. Um, we see in creation that they, Adam was given a mandate to be his vice-regent upon earth. Um, Adam wasn't simply a gardener, but he was called to fulfill a sort of priestly-like role who guarded God's sanctuary and then worked to expand it to the ends of the earth. Um, so there was mission before the fall for God's people. And this was always the call upon Israel, at, even after the fall. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. Though we know that this was largely failed. Christ became the true Israel by bringing the light to the Gentiles and grafting us in, pouring his spirit out at Pentecost and sending forth his disciples to the surrounding Gentile nations, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth went the gospel. So look at this prophecy of Isaiah that talks about the present ongoing mission of the church in these days and the days to come. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. 
The nations will see. You will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Notice what the salvation of the church is referred to as. Does it say that the church's righteousness will go forth like that of a small social club that has fun, feel-good meetings once a week? It says that it will go forward as a blazing torch. It's bright. It's a city on a hill. Or as Christ taught, we are to be the lampstand for a watching world. No one throws a blanket on the top of a lamp. Though I do at night because my wife is up reading all holy and stuff and I'm trying to sleep. Uh, But we rather exist to show off the glory of Christ to the watching world. Now, what does it mean in verse 3 of chapter 62 to be a royal diadem in the hand of our God? Commentator John Oswalt says this, the people of God, Zion, are in his hand, in his care, and under his control. But they are not in his hand as slaves or lumps of wood or stone. They are there as a priceless possession, a thing of delight, honor, and beauty. God restores his people as one would precious jewelry to hold in hand and show off. The church is God's most dear possession. As the church moves forth into the world on mission, it inflames the heart of God with great pride and joy, like a king holding his crown as he walks through conquered territory, proving to the onlookers that the royal diadem he holds in hand signals his kingship. Last point. in Christ as we're anchored to his divine resolution. As we see that our sanctification is ultimately him and his work. And and by the strength of his might, uh, I do think positively we are free to to, um, come up with uh, resolutions. And I think we ought to. I think think New Year's is a great opportunity to, to get together with Um, family or alone and think through um, ways in which you hope God to to work in you and and to pray. And I just have have one one thing that I want to to speak about. Um, I I like to think through goals with the acronym of SMART. I don't know if, if any of you guys have done goal planning, maybe you've known this acronym SMART. Specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-bound. I just want to give one. Uh, What would it look like in the new year? Because when we talk about intimacy with Christ as a means to really the garden, right? Fruitfulness in your life. What does it look like to just to pray more? To pray more. Maybe you don't pray at all. What would it look like to to pray once a week? I don't know. Maybe maybe you pray with your wife. uh, If you're a husband, maybe you pray with your wife somewhat regularly. What about once a week? Maybe you do once a week. What about, what about three times a week? Uh, maybe you do three times a week. What about every night? Let me read a, uh, something from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, this is a great book that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, Lutheran pastor during World War II, 
Uh, he uh, has famous books, Cost of Discipleship, Life Together. This one's on the Psalms, prayer book of the Bible. It's incredible. I love it. He says this. Um, in his book on the Psalms, he says, Lord, teach us to pray. So the, so the disciples said to Jesus, right? In doing so, they were acknowledging that they were not able to pray on their own. They had to learn. To learn to pray sounds contradictory to us. Either the heart is so overflowing that it begins to pray by itself, we say or think, or it will never learn to pray. But here's the part that that I think that really captured my heart and, and spoke to me. But this is a dangerous error, um, which is certainly very widespread among Christians today. And what is that error? That error is to imagine that it is natural for the human heart to pray. It is an error to think that your heart just naturally wants to pray. We then confuse wishing, hoping, sighing, all of which the heart can certainly do on its own with praying. So, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller, um, in their marriage early on, resolved to pray, and, and the story from the book of, on prayer by Tim Keller is, is told like this. Um, Kathy came up to Tim and said, Tim, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you would not forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together, this is Kathy talking to Tim, if we don't pray together to God, we're not gonna make it because of all that we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. And this is what Tim says after that. Maybe it was the power of the illustration. Maybe it was just the right moment. Maybe it was the Spirit of God. Or most likely of all, it was the Spirit of God using the moment and the clarity of the metaphor. For both of us, the penny dropped. We realized the seriousness of the issue. And we admitted that anything that was truly a non-negotiable necessity was something we could do. That was more than 12 years ago. And Kathy and I cannot remember missing a single evening of praying together, at least by phone, even when we've been apart in different hemispheres. So let me conclude with this. Remember, God never wavers. And as December 31st is now here, he doesn't get nervous thinking about whether or not he should jot down some resolutions or not. Uh, Before the foundation of the world, God resolved to send forth his son to be born in the likeness of human flesh, to carry our griefs and bear our sin, as Isaiah speaks of in chapter 53. Isaiah says that God's resolution was to crush the son for our iniquity. And make no mistake, Christ was not a passive victim in the redemptive plan of salvation, or as I like to call it, the pre-temporal inter-Trinitarian council of peace. That's what they teach you at seminary, fancy words like that. All that means is this, before the foundation of the world, Christ resolved to willingly submit to the Father's will. And Isaiah describes Christ like this, that Jesus set his face like a flint. That means when we say that person has their game face on, I mean, he was, Jesus was, was dead set. His face was set like a stone 
to accomplish your salvation. Uh, For the sake of his church, he went forth to die, to bring forth, like in the pain of childbirth, a new creation and a new people. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, We ask that by your spirit you would help it uh, to dwell within us, Lord, that you would sanctify us, uh, that you would make us new, and that we would live uh, with hope and trust in you, that we would look towards uh, the day of your return, that we would meditate upon the, the righteousness of you, Christ, the true King, um, that we would bow before you now, that we would come to you, that we would have intimacy with you, Jesus, that we might bear fruit, Father, first for your glory, because you rightfully deserve fruit, and also, God, for the, for the world to, to watch, to see your glory, God, and that more and more onlookers might join your family, might be drawn in. They might believe upon your name, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.